Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 23. We're told in being let go, they, speaking of Peter and John, probably the lame man that was healed uh, towards the end of chapter 3, they went to their own companions, and we talked about that at length last Sunday, and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice. Peter, John, the lame man, their companions, all those that they had reported to, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, before we begin to look at the substance of this prayer, let's take a moment and consider first the motivation behind their prayer. We'll look at the substance of it, but let's look at the motivation. What caused them to pray? Well, we're told that when they heard that, and it's definitive, it would appear from the context provided by Luke, our author, that the main motivator of this group of believers collectively together raising their voice with one accord to God, that it was the report that had been given to them by Peter and John of, accordingly, all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Now, one can imagine that the threat, that if they were to speak in the name of Jesus, they would face persecution. You can imagine that that threat, based in the report that Peter and John had brought back, would cause them, would give them a motivator to have this spirit-led prayer meeting. This group of believers, this church, They might have been young in their faith, but they weren't stupid. They knew that whatever anonymity they might have enjoyed previously, they had all but lost. They had stirred up the hornet's nest. The most powerful men in in Israel were now pitted against them. They had made enemies of the most politically connected, wealthy, powerful men in the land. The same group of men that had illegally arrested and tried and executed Jesus. And so we can see why with some trepidation, after kicking the hornet's nest, they're now on their knees in prayer. They could see the storm on the horizon. They could sense that there was an unavoidable crash that was coming. They were on a crash course. They knew that they would tango again with the religious establishment. And though this religious establishment had been clear in their command, hadn't they? To speak nor teach in the name of Jesus to no man. Peter and John had already drawn the line in the sand. They didn't capitulate to their demands, did they? As we left things off last week, they told them, well, that's great. Whether we obey you or God, you be the judge, but let's be clear that we cannot but speak the things that we have heard and seen. You can threaten us. You can up the ante, but we're just letting you know we're not going to listen to you. We're not going to obey you. What you're asking us to do, it's not that you're asking us to do anything, but rather you're asking us to not be what we are, witnesses of Jesus. We have seen these things, we have heard these things, and we will be a witness to them. You can't change us from who we are. And it's with this heavy reality that Peter and John had drawn this line of demarcation in the sand, If we're going to do this, we'll be persecuted. We know it. It's with this reality, this heaviness. It's hanging over their heads and their hearts, and it's with this moment, with this context, this background, that they come together. They receive the report. There's a heaviness. Oh, man. And what do they do? 
They get to their knees with one accord and they pray. You know, prayer in and of itself is a fascinating phenomenon. Since every world religion has prayer as a core tenet, the world's seven billion or so inhabitants pray. You know, the vast majority of people pray. Very few instances where you'll run across someone, you're like, yeah, I don't pray, I don't believe in that. Like, everybody prays. Whatever religion you're in, whatever background, whatever context, whatever culture, there's still, within the heart of man, a desire to pray. You know, every world religion, interestingly enough, they also have some kind of ritual associated with prayer. Like, for example, Christians. Like, what do we teach even the the youngsters to do? Put your hands together and bow your head. I love it. We'll do, we'll do prayers with Quincy at night. You know, like, Quincy, we're going to pray. And he's just, boom, hands together, eyes closed, and head, head down. Like, it's, it's a ritual. Catholics, when they pray, they light candles. And they hold on to rosaries. Native Americans, they do dances, which I kind of like that. Like, I wish we did more dancing with our prayers. Like, they do, you know, rain dances and all kinds of ritualistic dances with their worship. Hindus, Hindus chant mantras. They also do yoga. It's part of their prayer. Jews, they bow their heads and they sway back and forth, holding on to the phylacteries. Buddhists seek seclusion for the purpose of meditation. Muslims practice salat, which is the kneeling and laying prostrate, and then getting up and kneeling and laying prostrate as they're praying towards Mecca to Allah. Did you know Quakers, they also have a custom to prayer? They pray in complete silence. Which I kind of wonder, like, if you're having a prayer meeting with a group of Quakers, when do you know it's done? <laughs> like, that just seems kind of interesting to me. And while almost every single person incorporates prayer in some regards into their own life, have you ever noticed that the majority of people struggle They struggle to define what it is that they're doing when they pray, and they struggle to define exactly what prayer seeks to accomplish. Everybody prays, but no one really knows why. Even this morning, if we were to take a poll and have you all write out a definition for prayer, it would be all over the board. Everyone prays, few people know what prayer really is. Isn't that interesting? Wikipedia, which is the source of all information in the world, defines prayer as a communication directed towards a deity, a spirit, a deceased person, or a lofty idea, that's pretty broad, for the purpose of worshiping, requesting guidance, requesting assistance, confessing sins, or to express one's thoughts and emotions. Man, they just like buckshot. Like they just covered as much as they could in one definition. And while Wikipedia defines prayer in this way, the most common definition for prayer I think it yields more confusion than anything else. Merriam-Webster defines prayer as a petition to God. Google defines prayer as an earnest hope or wish. The Oxford Dictionary, which sounds refined, right? It defines prayer as a solemn request for help. Now, while it's true that even Scripture encourages believers to bring our requests to God, the act of relegating prayer as only being the mechanism by which a person petitions God has tragically fostered more skepticism in God than it has anything else in our society. 
It's, it's bred more skepticism than it has faith. Let me give you two examples of how this common misconception of prayer simply being the way we make a petition to God has fostered confusion within our society. Comedian George Carlin, he made this observation in one of his stand-up routines. He said, suppose your prayers aren't answered. And he's not a Christian, by the way. He says, well, what do you say? Well, it's God's will. Thy will be done. Fine. But if it's God's will, and he's going to do what he wants anyway, why bother praying in the first place? Seems like a big waste of time to me. Couldn't you just skip the praying part and go right to his will? It's all very confusing. Now, by the way, that quote's not exact. There was some expletives that I found no way to include uh, in an appropriate way. In his book, Mortality, atheist Christopher Hitchens points out the silliness of human beings petitioning a divine God through the mechanism of prayer. He observes, the man who prays is the one who thinks that God has arranged matters all wrong, but who also thinks that he can instruct God in how to put them right. Now, both of these two criticisms, these two critiques of prayer based upon this common definition that prayer is nothing more than the way in which we petition God, they actually make logical sense to me. I've thought the same thing. If, if it's all like, well, God's will will be done anyway, then why do I need to talk to him about it? Like, shouldn't I just live in the will of God versus praying for the will of God to be changed or something? Like, that's always, as a Christian, kind of been a, a complexity to me, something I haven't really been able to pinpoint. And then I've also felt like it's arrogant. Have you ever felt like when you're praying that it's arrogant, that you are telling God that he doesn't know what he's doing? Like, hey, I know that you've, you've brought this situation into my life, but I, I think you should rethink that. Like, I agree with both Christopher Hitchens and George Carlin in their criticisms of prayer based upon this simplified definition. The confusion. Let me sum it up for you with a very simple theorem. I like to think logically. I like to process things logically. It helps me wrap my brain around it. But here you go. Since prayer is the mechanism by which I make requests of God, that's the common definition, but from my experience, God doesn't exactly answer my requests, then I can logically conclude one of three things. First, God doesn't exist. And thus, prayer is worthless. This is Christopher Hitchens' perspective. Secondly, I could conclude that God does exist, but he doesn't give a rip. He doesn't care about me. And thus, prayer is pointless. That's the perspective of George Carlin. It's logical. But there's a third option. If prayer is the mechanism by which I make requests of God, but God doesn't seem to answer my requests, well, maybe, just maybe, prayer is more than making requests. And thus, I should change the way I pray. I'm going to go with option C. Before we look at this prayer of the early church, I think it's important we first establish a complete biblical picture of what Scripture says concerning prayer. First, prayer is the mechanism by which human beings communicate to God. It's the way you communicate to God. According to Scripture, in addition to being the mechanism by which we make known our requests, Philippians 4, verse 6, it is through prayer 
that a person confesses sins to the Lord. 1 John 1.9. It's the way that we make intercession for one another, for others. James 5, verse 15. It's the way that we thank God for his provisions. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. Prayer is the mechanism by which we praise him for who he is and what he's doing. Hebrews 13, verse 15. And according to scripture, there are only three requirements for prayer. Three essential requirements. First, you must approach God, according to Psalm 66, verse 18, with a pure heart. Secondly, you must approach God, according to John 14, verses 12 through 14, through faith in Jesus Christ. And thirdly, you must pray in accordance with the will of God. 1 John 5, verse 14. Now, contrary to Catholic doctrine, it should be pointed out that the Bible only encourages us to pray to God the Father. Never once is there an instance where believers are encouraged to pray to other human beings, whether they be alive or in the afterlife. As Christians, we pray in the name of Jesus because Scripture tells us that it is through Jesus alone that we have access to the Father. No, as we look at the prayer that we're going to see here in Acts 4, they didn't pray to Jesus. They prayed to the Father. They prayed through Jesus to God the Father, but they didn't pray to Jesus. They prayed through Jesus, but not to Jesus. And when you get into the complexities of the Trinity, I know that can be somewhat semantics. But at the same time, we will see that they pray to God the Father through Jesus, which is why I encourage you to pray in the name or the authority of Jesus. That I want my request to go to God the Father through the only way it can, that being Jesus. If you pray in the name of Mary, your prayers don't make it to God. Because it's only in his name and his name alone, according to a lot of scripture in the book of Hebrews that our petitions go before the Father. And because prayer, as the way we communicate to God, is spiritual in nature, the Bible presents no mandated physical posturing for prayer. If you read through the Scripture, you'll find examples of people standing while they pray. Nehemiah 9, verse 5. You'll see that there are examples of people kneeling when they pray. Ezra 9, 5. Or sitting, I like that one, 1 Chronicles 17, 16 through 27. Bowing, Exodus 34, verse 8. Or even praying with, with hands lifted into the air, lifted hands, 1 Timothy 2, 8. Interestingly enough, probably never considered this, but you know the Bible has zero references mandating you to pray with your eyes closed. We all do it, but you know the Bible never tells us to. Now, not to say that you should pray with your eyes open. You can if you'd like. Culturally, we close our eyes because we, it helps us try to look beyond the physical, to try to get beyond distractions, to try to approach God uh, directly. But most of the time in Scripture, they prayed with eyes lifted to the heavens. Open eyes, not closed. Secondly, aside from prayer being the way in which humanity communicates to God, Prayer is important because it's one of the principal ways humanity communes with God. Communicates to God, communes with God. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17, the Apostle Paul, he, he gives the church an interesting mandate, an interesting command. He says, to pray without ceasing. And that kind of goes against our common idea of prayer. Like, how can I pray without ceasing? 
if I got my eyes closed? How can I pray in the car with my eyes closed? That's not going to be a really good dynamic, me praying with my eyes closed in the car. Some of you might drive better that way, but that's neither here nor there. But we're encouraged to pray without ceasing, and yet we have all these ideas about prayer. It's hard to reconcile the two. You see, it would seem prayer, as the way we communicate to God, was not to be a scheduled activity, but instead a continuous lifestyle. Think of prayer more as an attitude than it is an action. It's a mechanism by which you can explore and interact with the Heavenly Father. Martin Lloyd-Jones described prayer as the highest activity of the human soul. And I think he's spot on. You see, prayer as a lifestyle, not a singular event, it's designed to enable you, the follower of God, to stay throughout your day in a perpetual state of community with God. Your prayers can be short and they can be long. They can be in the morning, in the afternoon. They don't have to be at night. The Bible actually only seems to indicate one specific time that you should pray. And that is actually before you eat. Lots of information setting a precedent by Jesus, thanking the meal before he blessed and broke it. Uh, Passover Seder, Paul did the same thing we'll see later. Now, this does seem to be like when you eat, you should thank God for the food. And by what most of us eat, you should really thank God for the food and ask that it not kill you. I pray more before I eat Mickey D's than probably anything else because it's so good, but so bad. So if prayer is the way in which a believer the follower of God, stays in a connected community, this relationship, this interaction with God. Is then there any surprise that the one character in Scripture that prayed more than anyone else was Jesus himself? Because he needed to stay connected to the Father, and so should you. Please understand what prayer is not. Prayer is not the mechanism by which God receives status updates as to what's happening in your life. As if the all-seeing God of the universe needs you to keep him posted on what's going on. Like some of us think that, that like prayer is like we come before the Lord and we're like, God, I got to tell you what happened today. I totally blew it. And you confess your sin there, and then there's God up in heaven like, oh my goodness gracious, Jesus, Holy Spirit, how did we miss this? Please understand, it's not as if amen was some kind of cosmic hashtag. That the more people we could get lifting up a request to God, the more likely it was that need would start trending in the Twitter feed of heaven and therefore get God's attention. The more people we can get lifting this prayer up, the more that it's going to trend in the halls of heaven. And if the more requests are going up, the more God will care. We think that way. And yet that is not what prayer is. Also, on a side note, prayer doesn't give you a pass to gossip to God about others. On your own or with a group? Sometimes you go to a prayer meeting and it's nothing but gossip, dish and dirt. And we do it in, a, in a, I'm interceding. No, you're not. You're gossiping. I actually think that God says so much about gossiping to try to keep us from gossiping to him. Not necessarily even each other. 
Understand, prayer is not the mechanism by which you seek to influence God's plans for your life. It's not the way you keep God updated, and it's not the way you influence God. As if the all-wise God of the universe, who knew you before the foundations of the world, doesn't know what's best for your life. Sadly, for many people, prayer is nothing more than a well-crafted business proposal designed to convince God to buy into your plan. C.S. Lewis made a very powerful observation. He said, in Gethsemane, the holiest of all petitioners prayed three times that a certain cup might pass from him. It did not. It's not about you trying to convince God to buy into what you think is best. Friends, as Jesus himself exhorted and practiced, prayer should not focus on seeing God's will. Prayer should focus on seeing God's will done on earth, not my will accomplished in heaven. Sadly, many of us, we get on our knees, but we're actually kicking the front door of heaven down. And we're coming in guns a-blazing. God, you're going to do what I'm telling you. And how wrong is that? That God needs our advice or our counsel, even our suggestions. Mother Teresa said that prayer is not asking. Prayer is putting oneself in the hands of God at his disposition to listen to his voice in the depths of our heart. If you pray to a God that you see as nothing more than a genie whose job it is to make your every wish come true, I hate to break it to you, you are actually in for a crisis of faith for two reasons. First, that God doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. The God of the Bible is not a genie you can rub the right way. Yeah, that was a Christina Aguilera reference. God is completely sovereign, and he serves at the will of no one. I hope you know that. If you're praying to God to try to get God to do what you want him to do, and you're like, why are my requests just coming back empty? I'm sending them up, and they're pinging back. Why? Well, it's because the way that you're praying, the God you think you're praying to, that's not how he is, and secondly, that's not how he rolls. Please realize God is more interested in providing you the things you really need as opposed to giving you the things you think you really want. The sad irony is that small, finite, pea-brained people, that's you and me, sometimes believe we actually know what's better over a God who knows what's best. You know, looking back over my 30 years of existence, I have made some requests. I've prayed some prayers, convinced that I knew what was best for me. I mean, with all of my heart. I mean, I made a request sincerely and passionately. And yet, in retrospect, today, I find myself more grateful for the requests that God didn't answer than the ones he did. That said, if you pray seeing this communication to God and this communion with God, what prayer is, as a way that you can seek to align your heart with his, your will with his, your desires with his, your plans to his, 
then you're in for the most radical experience of your life. If he's just somebody that you go to to let him know what's going on and to give him suggestions on what he needs to do, you're going to find yourself in a crisis of faith. But if you go to him, communicating to him, to commune with him, hey, prayer will change your life. R.C. Sproul, he said, prayer does not change things. Prayer does change things, all kinds of things. But the most important thing it changes is us. As we engage in this communion with God more deeply and come to know the one with whom we are speaking more intimately, that growing knowledge of God reveals to us all the more brilliantly who we are and our need to change in conformity to him. Prayer changes us profoundly. Another said that the function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one praying. And this isn't even to factor in the effects of having a lifestyle of prayer, the purifying effects this lifestyle will have, communication to God, communion with God, the effects that it will have on the purity of your life, the effects that spending time in prayer all throughout your day, what you will see in regards to the purifying and the cleansing that will happen all throughout your day. John Bunyan He stated aptly that prayer will make a man cease from sin. Or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. Now, with all of this set up about prayer, let's look at how they begin their prayer. They start off here in Acts 4, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, the word we translate in the New Testament as Lord is actually two similar Greek masculine nouns that both mean master, but in two radically different ways. The majority of the time, when you come across the word Lord in the New Testament, it's actually the Greek noun kiros, which was a title common in the Greek language and referenced the way in which a wife-child would reference a husband-father. So it was a lord, but it was used in this kind of context. Kiros, which is most often used for God and for Jesus, was a title of honor. It was a title of endearment, because while acknowledging God's authority, Kiros emphasized the benevolence that God showed towards those under his authority. So Kiros, as a lord, was a term of endearment and honor. However, in this instance, the the word Lord we find is not actually kiros. It's a different Greek noun altogether, the word despotes, which was used less frequently in the Greek language because it referenced the way in which a slave would refer to his owner or his master. Despotes used only six times in describing God the Father and interestingly enough, never used to describe Jesus was a title of reverence because it not only recognized that the very nature of God's role as master uh, existed, but that this role as master came with intrinsic, intrinsically like no limitations or no restraints in how God might choose to exercise that power towards those under his authority. So Kiros was a title that a wife might use in respect to her husband or a child to, to the father, but despotes was something that was only used by a slave 
to the master because it recognized that the master had no limitation, no restraint on his power over the individual. Think of the difference this way. And referring to God as Lord, Kiros, you're processing your interaction with him through the prism of a relationship with God. However, and referring to God with this word uh, despotes, or we could just translate it despot or dictator, you're now processing your interaction with him through the prism of the raw power that God has over you. So kiros, it's processed through the relationship that you have with God. Despotes, it describes the interactions you have through the prism of the raw power that God has over you. One Greek scholar commented that despotes did no doubt express on the lips of the faithful who used it their sense of God's absolute disposal over his creatures, of his autocratic power, more strongly than Kiros would have ever done. Using the title despotes implied a, a more entire prostration of self before the mighty and, majest- and majesty of God than Kiros would have done. And this is interesting, because when they, with one accord, come to their knees, when they exalt their voice with one accord, they start with Lord, not Kiros, but with despotes. With despotes. You are God. Which now acknowledges Theos, the one true God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They literally are opening their prayer by saying, we recognize the majestic, awesome power that you have as not only our God, but as our dictator who can do what you please because we know that the power that you have over us is the same power by which you created the sky and the earth and the sea and all the animals that live in them. You know, it's interesting to me that their prayer affirms one of the most basic fundamental biblical truths concerning God. In the beginning, God created. This is what they're affirming. And no, they're not reminding themselves of this truth because they somehow had forgotten it. Like, oh yeah, you're the creator of all things. No, they were reminding themselves of this truth so that in proportion to the mounting opposition that was facing them, they could remember how big and powerful God was in context to what they were facing. Sadly for Louis Giglio, the early church had already cornered the God is big market. And this is why we're instructed to begin our prayers. How? How does Jesus tell us to begin our prayers? Our Father, who what? Who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. And Jesus even modeled this in Matthew 11, verse 25, when he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, but you have revealed them to babes. You see, in reminding myself who God really is, this helps me contextualize what God actually does. And in turn, these two realities help me place my present circumstances, situations, concerns, requests, fears, into a proper perspective. The problem you might be facing from your vantage point right now, you see no solution. I've been there. 
you're looking and you're trying to process it and you're listing out all the different varying options. How can I get through this? How can I get around this? How could God intervene? And no matter what you're listing or what remedies you think might exist, you keep coming back to this one reality. I see no way around it. I see no way out of it. I see no solution. But take heart. For the powerful creator of the universe, the very creator who spoke all things into existence from nothing is on your side. So if you don't see a solution, guess what? God can speak it into existence. From that which doesn't exist to now which does. Many of us face storms. For these folks, it was the fear of persecution, opposition. Storms come in all shapes and sizes. And when we face them, it's easy to get overwhelmed at the magnitude of the storm I'm in. But don't lose sight that the creator of the universe, the very one who holds together all things that he spoke into existence, is on your side. I'm like, really? These religious leaders? What match were they when God's on my side? Because he's holding together the very atoms that make them exist. And at any point he can go, boom, you're done. So if God, the creator, is on my side, why should I fear? For many of us, these obstacles, they're overwhelming because it places the future into uncertainty. Take heart. Because you have the powerful creator on your side who transcends time and space and knows your beginning from your end and your end from your beginning. So though you might think, where is the future in this? God's saying, I know the thoughts I have towards you, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. They continue, verse 25, who by the mouth of your servant, David, have said, why did the nations rage? Why the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth, they stood, they took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now, notice the progression of their prayer. They go from reminding themselves who God is to now refocusing their attention on what God has said. I love this phrase, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, it can literally be translated, using the mouth of your servant David, you have said. And then they quote directly from Psalms 2, 1 and 2. I think these believers, this early church, took great solace in this passage. For it clearly affirms that the opposition to Jesus and then the opposition to his followers was something that God had long predicted. Which meant that the per persecution they were now facing was not an indicator that things were now like spiraling out of God's control, but rather that the things were actually working to his control or to the way that he had planned them. Because he had predicted the things would come, now that they've come, they can't think that this is crazy, but it's actually a manifestation of what God had already predicted, that God still had his hand on all of these things. You know, I think if you read the rest of Psalms 2, you'll also see why they were pretty encouraged. Psalms 2, verses 4 and 5, I'll give you a little taste of it. The, the passage continues that he who sits in the heavens in regards to this persecution shall laugh. 
the Lord shall hold them, those who do the persecuting, in derision. And God shall speak to them in his wrath and distress in his deep displeasure. Like, why were they encouraged by this passage? Well, it spoke of God's judgment that he would rain down in his timing on those who would do the persecuting. And so they're looking, they're processing this from Scripture, and they're like, well, wait a second. We've got this coming our direction, but that's okay because we've got God on our side. Our dictator, our sovereign God who created us, holds all things together, who said this would happen, which means he's got it under control. I recognize who he is, and I recognize what he says, and I realize, hey, you're good. I'm good. This is not out of your control, which means that I can endure. You're working it all for the good. And according to this passage, you're going to strike them down anyway, which I like. Like, I've really tried to encourage Andy to find more, like, imprecatory psalms that we could incorporate into worship. You know, those... Strike down my enemies with your fury. You know what I mean? Like, have you ever felt that way? Of like that neighbor with the dog. God, strike them down. That might not be the right example for that. But you get what I'm saying. They took heart that God was not only in control, but would dish out accordingly when it was necessary. You know, in keeping your eyes on the person and word of God, it's so critical to do this. Because while we endure these tough spots of life, if we keep these things in focus, who God is and what he said, it'll keep your emotions grounded to reality. You know, I also find it interesting that in quoting from Psalms 2, these early Christians translate the Hebrew word Lord, which is Yahweh, or the unspoken name of God, and they translate it here as kiros, not despotes. So they start by saying, Lord, despotes, dictator. But now, as it's getting more personal, they use a more personal term, kiros. You see, though they had a healthy reverence and respect for God, they also recognized that God loved them, that God was tender, that God was merciful. They understood that as his children, the God that the Jews feared, Yahweh, the unspoken name of God, he was actually very approachable and knowable. You know, I think our prayers should always balance our approachability to God with a reverence of God. I think, sadly, sometimes we're a little cavalier in the way we pray. You know, if you start your prayer by saying, dictator, despotes, you can do what you want, well, that's going to set some context into what comes next. Because you're going to start throwing around accusations to the sovereign God who holds all things together? No. We should balance this concept of reverence, respect, with an endearment. Kiros and despotes. For truly, verse 27, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, notice the, the, the tenses here, speaking to God the Father, referencing Jesus by name, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, they gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. You see, these believers, two quick realities came into focus. If Jesus had been persecuted, why should they expect anything different? And if everything that had taken place had been under God's control, then why now shouldn't they see their own current state of affairs as also being under God's control? 
Verse 20, now, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word by stretching out your healing hand and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Check out how their prayer worked. After taking time to consider God for who he was and for what he had to say, they were now able to look at the big picture to gain perspective on their situation so that when they finally got around to their request, their petition, what did they ask for? My inclination would have been like, God, remove this persecution. We're a little church. We're young. We're growing in our faith. This could do us in. I might pray with all kinds of context, but from this vantage point, after processing things and praying appropriately, when they get to their petition, what do they ask for? Not that the persecution would go away, but rather grant to us boldness that we can speak your word. You see, because they prayed correctly, and in the process of doing so, were able to align their hearts to God's, when they finally got around to a petition, they didn't ask God to grant escape from opposition. Instead, they asked that God might grant them strength to stand in boldness in the face of opposition. Their entire way of processing this storm had changed. They had gained a heavenly perspective. Instead of asking God to remove the storm brewing on the horizon, this story, it should encourage you to do something different. Instead of asking God to get rid of your problems or give you escape from your problems, you should instead come to God and ask that he might grant you the strength to endure whatever trial, whatever tribulation, whatever thing is coming your direction because it's first coming through God. There's nothing that will come to me without first being filtered through God's loving hands. And I must accept that and hold to that and place everything else in context to that and then ask for strength to endure, to grow. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Wow. James 5 tells us that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You see, coming before God in prayer and the manner that Jesus had instructed them, it had successfully tuned their hearts to the will of God so that they knew now what to ask for. They asked for boldness. And what did God do? He gave it to them. He answered their prayer. He granted their request. We're told they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was this fresh filling that did what? provided them the strength to stand and the power to boldly speak. God, we need boldness. Help us. And God says, right on. That's exactly what you need. That's exactly it. And so he sends his spirit, shakes the place, rocking and rolling and filling, and then they had the boldness. So you don't feel as though your prayers are being answered. Some might say that it's proof that God doesn't exist. Others that God doesn't care. But could it be that the requests that dominate your prayers aren't being answered because you're not asking for the right thing? If you want to see your prayers avail much, I think we all do, don't we? May I encourage you to first rethink why it is you're praying in the first place. 
God wants to be your heavenly father, not a heavenly genie. He desires to have children who are more interested in a relationship with him than what they might be able to get out of him. Yes, prayer. It might be the mechanism by which we communicate to God, but it is not the mechanism by which we make our demands or assimilate information or gossip about others. Prayer, as the highest activity of the human soul, is the mechanism by which you are afforded a most awesome privilege of communicating and communing with the living God. It is a way that you can surrender your will to his by which you can gain a heavenly perspective on your earthly circumstances, which is why you should also rethink the way in which you pray. When you spend more time in prayer worshiping God for who he is and contemplating the truth of his word, when you allow this communion with him to set your present situations into a heavenly context, it will be then and only then that, will you, that you will know what to ask for and you will begin to see God work in a radical way. Do you want to see God work in a radical way? Do you want to see God active in your life, answering your requests, giving you strength, filling you with the Spirit, empowering you for boldness? Do you want this? How you pray and for what reason you pray determines whether or not that's a reality. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, ask. This is a promise. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? The key is knowing what to ask him. And that's why we spend time in prayer. And so, Father, we take a moment.